kind of like a radio dial. We can spend 70% of our calories that are carbohydrate content and burn them as fuel. But as we become more insulin resistant, what happens is that fuel then becomes fat. So insulin's main job is to put it away and store it. So I tell people all the time, if you're planning on eating a Krispy Kreme, you better be running with it. Because the body, in the absence of need, when we have insulin coming up, it's going to take that glucose and it is going to store it as fat. And we can get a primary sort of priming of that activity that gets turned on. So as you become more insulin resistant, essentially what's happening is your body says, forget it. I'm not going to use those carbohydrates. I'm going to take them to the fat to store. Welcome to this functional life. It's your host, Betty Murray. It is time to get geeky, where I step away from the interviews and give you some brain candy science in bite-sized pieces in a way that's easy for you to understand. It's going to be me and you today, and in these short targeted episodes, I'm going to bring you personal insights, frequently asked questions, and the topic du jour in a more quick and actionable way. I go all out with the geeky, wrap it up with a bow, and share some sass as always. This is all for you to live an exceptional life. Let's get started with this functional life. Welcome today to This Functional Life, and we are going to be doing some brain candy bits. Specifically, I'm going to share three of the 12 lies, myths, and pardon me, bullshit that gets said all the time to women over 40 about how to lose weight, maintain health, and get a great body composition. And I'm going to cover some of those myths today. I'm going to do several of these over the next month or so about just what do we need to get out in the open that is different once we're over 40 as women. So the first myth I want to cover today is the idea that everyone, including every woman, would lose weight on a low-carb, high-protein diet. So the first thing is, I can tell you from my own experience, I was very much into bodybuilding and weightlifting in my late 20s and early 30s. So what does that mean? I did a lot of high-intensity anabolic training with weightlifting. I also ate low-carb, and high protein, very high protein, as a matter of fact, I was allowed one cheat meal a week. And believe me, I was all about planning the El Capitan platter and all of the junk food that I was eating that one meal. So I ate very, very low carb, high protein for years. And to be honest, a really intense exercise routine, working out six days a week, usually lifting and lifting heavy, and then eating very low carb and eating somewhere between 100 and 120 grams of protein a day did help me maintain my body weight. But I can tell you, I was obsessed with food. Food was something I had to deal with every three to four hours I had to eat frequently. And and it was something that was constantly on my mind. And so the low-carb, high-protein diet worked when I was in my 20s and 30s. So what is difference when we turn 40 and above? So the first thing that we know is obviously our hormones are changing. You can just look at a 20-year-old woman and look at a 40-year-old woman, and you can tell there's a difference between our hormones. So as we hit 40, we get radical changes in things like estrogen and progesterone, which are the two primary hormones that make us females. And those hormones start to shift in our 40s. And that's why we see things like fertility issues that start to pop up when we're in our actually late 30s and early 40s. And it's because one of the hormones, progesterone, is declining. So we have a significant hormonal indifference that is happening when we're over 40. And then if you're like me and you're over 50, Most of the times, estrogen has now nosedived, 
and we've gone through menopause and now we have a significant change to hormones. So where does that play a role with cutting carbs and eating high protein? The idea of cutting carbs and eating high protein means that we are trying to change the way the body manages glucose, which is your blood sugar, and the hormone whose primary job is to control that insulin. So the first thing to understand is if I eat a high carbohydrate meal, so if I'm eating foods that are packaged, boxed, or labeled, that contains a high amount of either sugar, high fructose corn syrup, or foods that are made predominantly out of grains that have been milled and processed into processed foods, I'm going to get a significant rise in carbohydrate content, and I'm going to have a significant rise in my glucose. So when I eat those foods, I'm going to have a significant rise in insulin, which insulin's job, it's a hormone made by the pancreas, and its job is to pick up glucose, your blood sugar, and take it to the cells to get burned or take it for storage to the fat cells. So when I eat a high-protein, low-carb diet, Essentially, the first step of what's happening is I'm reducing the carbohydrates available to the bloodstream, which means I'm going to reduce insulin. And I can tell you in the short term, that does help lower insulin. So if I have insulin resistance, meaning I'm producing more insulin than what's necessary to lower my blood sugar and control it because my cells have become somewhat immune to it or not listening to the insulin anymore then I'm going to actually, in the short term, have a reduction in carbohydrate content, a reduction in insulin, but a reduction also in my glucose storage as fat, because it's kind of like a radio dial. We can spend 70% of our calories that are carbohydrate content and burn them as fuel, but as we become more insulin resistant, what happens is that fuel then becomes fat. So insulin's main job is to put it away and store it. So I tell people all the time, if you're planning on eating a Krispy Kreme, you better be running with it because the body in the absence of need, when we have insulin coming up, it's going to take that glucose and it is going to store it as fat. And we can get a primary sort of priming of that activity that gets turned on. So as you become more insulin resistant, essentially what's happening is your body says, forget it. I'm not going to use those carbohydrates. I'm going to take them to the fat to store. So it's very clear that we may need to lose or reduce carbohydrates, particularly the very starchy ones, the high sugar ones, the highly processed ones in the beginning to create insulin sensitivity, which means allow insulin the key to click into the cell and turn on the metabolism, right? Which actually just generates metabolic activity within the powerhouse of mitochondria. So in the short term, yes, that makes a difference, but we have to attend to what else will cause a rise in insulin. And there's other metabolic pathways that are at play when we get older. So the first thing we need to know is carbohydrate content will raise insulin and raise glucose levels, right? So if I'm eating a bunch of spinach and broccoli and Brussels sprouts, I'm not going to get a large rise in insulin because I don't have a lot of carbohydrate content that's available because those foods have a lot of natural fiber. So one of the things we always talk about, regardless of what dietary regime somebody is on, we need a lot of high fiber vegetables. So those low sugar, low carbohydrate content, high fiber vegetables aren't going to cause a big rise in your glucose and or your insulin. Now, high carbs do, right? We already had that discussion. Well, what else would cause a rise in your insulin? What else is really interesting is a high protein meal meaning a protein meal that is significantly more or at least relatively more in composition of protein than what you really need at that time. 
we have the ability to take protein into our diet and consume it and metabolize it. And we can metabolize somewhere between, you know, 21 to 30 grams of protein in one sitting. What that means is, is I have so much of a protein that I can eat at one sitting. And when I have more than that, the body is not going to be able to utilize that protein appropriately. And it is going to take it to the liver and go through a process called gluconeogenesis. And gluconeogenesis is a fancy way of saying, I'm going to take that protein. I'm going to convert it to glucose and I'm going to store it in the fat and particularly in the liver and then in the fat around the body for use later. So a very high protein meal, particularly one that is significantly higher than what you can utilize at any given time. So what does that mean? That usually means that a woman's going to need somewhere between three and four ounces or maybe five ounces of protein at a meal, not an eight ounce piece of chicken breast, right? And definitely probably in some cases, unless you're doing some extraordinary amount of muscle building, do we need really super physiological levels of animal protein or proteins in general. And that includes your collagen, that includes your protein shakes, that includes other things. So too much protein in one meal and also very large meals cause a significant rise in insulin. So if you're consuming a a single large meal in a day, even if the composition of that meal is a healthy composition, you're going to get a rise in insulin. And whenever there's a rise in insulin, we're going to have a subsequent storage of fat unless your body is using that carbohydrate content or the glucose that's getting liberated from the liver at that time. So where does that bring me to the point on a low-carb, high-protein diet? If I'm a woman and I've been doing a low-carb, high-protein diet for a really long time, consuming very, very large quantities of protein at different meals, I may have been stimulating gluconeogenesis, so the conversion of basically proteins, the amino acids into carbohydrate content as glucose to be stored as fat. And actually the majority of your essential amino acids, so those are the building blocks of your body that we must get from the proteins in our food, right? Animal proteins have all of the essential amino acids together in one food, whereas vegetarian and vegan forms of proteins like your legumes and your grains and nuts and seeds have some, but not all of the essential amino acids in them. So when I eat proteins and I eat too much of them, I get an amplification of gluconeogenesis. So I store more carbohydrates than what I need. And as women go through menopause, the activity of gluconeogenesis, so the production of glucose at the liver out of amino acids, your proteins is actually amplified. So we become better at that as we get older. So What may have worked for me when I was 20 and 30, when I was eating a lot of protein, but fairly low carb may have set me up to where I was more stimulated or more turned on to use those proteins as fuel to take to the liver to make more glucose to source as triglycerides in the fat cells. So a high protein, low carb diet may in the short term create insulin sensitivity. However, in the liver and in a body of a perimenopausal woman, I may be stimulated to actually utilize that protein and make carbohydrate glucose out of it and store it as fat. So I can tell you in my 17 years of practice, I have routinely seen women, and I would say it's probably 30 to 40% of the women that come to me over 40 that may have multitude of health conditions. But one of the things they want to work on is they want to try and lose some body fat. Almost all of them routinely are eating a high protein, low carb diet 
And then they're doing number two, the next thing I want to talk about. So their diet may actually be stimulating more glucose production by the liver, or they may be overeating proteins at one meal and getting too much in a serving that is actually getting utilized in the body differently. Number two, there is a misconception that all women will lose weight from a high intensity interval workout. Now, much like the insulin sensitivity discussion, if somebody has been doing nothing and hasn't been exercising at all, high intensity intervals where we do training, where we go up to a high intensity and then bring the intensity back down. And there's many, many versions of that. My favorite is burst training and or Tabata, where we're doing a short duration of exercise with high intensity bursts, which are you know 60 seconds or less. And then we have sort of a cool down period for a moment, and then we repeat the burst. But the length of that exercise is fairly short. The research looking at this done by many different organizations showed that we have a diminishing return on investment when we do high intensity intervals when it lasts more than 15 minutes, especially for really bursting. And so bursting means that we're exercising very, very intensely in that burst of activity, but it requires you to stop or at least slow back down to calm back down in a minute or less. So that is different than intervals where you might be doing an intensity for like two minutes and then relaxing for a minute and then going back up, right? So there's different forms of high intensity intervals. What I find clinically with my clients is often they're doing high intensity intervals, but they're overdoing it, right? They're taking classes that may be 45 minutes to 50 minutes that have these intervals built in, but they've got too many of them. They're too long. So the thing is, is there's a fine line between eustress, which is good stress, and exercise would be considered eustress, and excessive stress, which is stress on the body, which causes oxidative damage, which causes the body to actually age more quickly and become more catabolic. When we look at women who are over 40, in many cases, a lot of my women are the ones doing low-carb, high-protein, and they're exercising intensely five, six days a week. They're working out in the gym and lifting weights. They're also doing cardio and they may even meet with a trainer and the trainer's like, you got to do more because your metabolism has slowed down. And yes, that may be true that we have metabolic changes as we hit our 40s and above. What we don't want to be doing is creating a high stress environment for a body that may very well already be stressed out. And one of the things I do with my hormone reset program is we look at the genetics of each individual woman. The other thing that we know is genetically, some of us are designed to really work well with high intensity intervals. And some of us are actually better at doing low intensity exercise more frequently and just a little bit of burst training or a little bit of intensity. And many of us and all of us would benefit from weightlifting, but the degree in which we do it, the length of time in which we do it, and the intensity in which we do it is highly variable in our genetics. So if I could take that and make a general statement to most women, if we're working out intensely and we're doing, you know, classes that are these very intense interval training, we're doing that three days a week and we're also lifting at the gym and walking every day and we're not getting where we need to go, you may very well be driving a stress response that is making the body more catabolic. So you're actually tearing down muscle tissue and your body is not burning fat in that exercise. I see women all the time who have been lifting weights and doing high intensity interval and low carb training 
And when they add up the calories they eat in a day, and they may be eating 1,200 calories, and then they add up what they burned in their high-intensity workout, they burned 1,800 or 500 calories. If it was a simple mathematical equation, they should be dropping weight like nobody's business, but they aren't. When we work out, we need to work out at the right intensity for the body at that time based on what the body needs. And we have to make sure that we're not being overly catabolic. And sometimes we are over training our body and we actually need to cut it back. And so if I've been doing all the right things, so if you're doing high protein, low carb and high intensity intervals and interchanging that with weightlifting and you're not getting anywhere, you are missing a big part of what may be going on in your body. And it's probably something that has changed in your 40s that was different when you're in your 20s and 30s and you're at hormonal peak, which brings me to my next myth that I want to talk about. So if we've identified that a high protein, low carb diet does create insulin sensitivity, but may not be adequate enough for somebody in our 40s and 50s because we have metabolic changes that are happening and we have a body that is more predisposed to take high proteins or high you know, large meals when we do eat, because maybe we're doing some fasting and we can't make it through the whole day. And so I eat one large meal or two large meals a day. All of a sudden our body, even if the calorie intake might not be that high, it's storing extra fat. So the idea, so number three, that all we need to do is count calories or even count macros. That it's very simple. Everybody could lose weight on a macro balanced diet and everybody can lose weight because we're simply a bank account because you can count calories is absolutely 100% incorrect. So calorie counting takes one big piece of how your body operates and ignores it. You know, if calories counting worked, we'd have one diet and everybody would go on that diet and it would work for everybody. What is a calorie? So a calorie is a unit of measure of energy. So carbohydrates and proteins per gram are four calories, right? So for every gram, they have four calories. Now, fat, animal fats and or vegetarian fats are nine calories per gram, right? So that's the first thing is a measurement of energy of use. But the truth is, when we look at our foods, our macronutrients, which are fats, proteins, and carbohydrates, we have really two essential nutrients. So protein is essential and fats are essential. So carbohydrates are not. So our body can absolutely live off of just fat and protein. Again, because the liver can actually make carbohydrates out of proteins if it needs to. So it can actually manufacture its own glucose because things in the body like the brain and particularly the red blood cells require glucose to function. So we have the ability to to basically make glucose, out of proteins, and fat are essential because fat actually helps us make up our membranes, our nerves, our linings of our body, and even the cell membranes, mitochondrial membranes. So we must get fat in our diet. We must get protein in our diet. And for the most part, our antioxidants, our other nutrients that are required, including our vitamins and minerals, which exist also in the protein and fats as well. But a lot of those nutrients also exist in carbohydrates. So don't take my comment here as a, as a statement that we don't need carbohydrates. We just need healthy carbohydrates. So those macros are needed. But when we look at calorie counting, calorie counting assumes that no matter what the substrate is, so whether it's a protein, fat, or carbohydrate, the same mechanism of use inside the body or the same utilization happens 
Well, we just talked about several hormones that are very different about how they handle your fuel, right? So your food turning into fuel. Again, we can't look at fat the same way that we look at carbohydrates or glucose because they're used differently. So for instance, fat doesn't really raise insulin. So if I eat a big sliver of avocado, or if I take a tablespoon of butter, I'm not going to get a rise in insulin when I eat it because insulin's not necessary for that food to metabolize. So when we look at the difference between carbs, proteins, and fats, we have to recognize that the hormones like insulin and a bunch of other hormones that we're going to talk about over the series, they actually control how much of what you eat gets used as fuel. The hormones rule the roost. So we are not an oven. We are not a bank account. We are chemistry that either is optimized or not based on what the body perceives is going on and what your body needs. And many times the things that are broken or we perceive as broken because we're getting symptoms that we don't want is the body actually trying to manage something in the short term that may be giving us an outcome in the long term that we don't like. Calories count, but they count very little. So I've said it before, I routinely see people all the time that are eating 1200 calories a day and burning 400 or 500 calories while they're working out a day and still cannot lose weight. And if anything, might even be gaining weight. So calories, if it was just that, would have taken care of that issue. So calories is a completely inaccurate, debunked, needs to go away as a conversation piece. Yes, they count. You can't eat 6,000 calories a day and and burn 2,000 through your activities and eventually not gain weight. That will absolutely happen. But the hormones, the metabolic hormones, the sex hormones, the thyroid hormones, the adrenal hormones, all of those hormones, including the ones involved in digestion, have a control mechanism that actually impacts what foods get used for what and how your body burns fuel. So macros count, but your macros, your fat, your carbohydrate, and your protein composition count because they influence the hormones. Again, we talked earlier about insulin and its impact with a high carbohydrate diet or a very large diet or a diet that's too high in protein at any particular meal. So macros count, but again, just counting macros, if I don't account for what's happening hormonally, both with the hormones that communicate directly with the cell, like insulin, and what's happening inside the cell, which is an entire different pathway we're going to talk about on my next myths, lies, and other things you need to understand about losing weight as women over 40, there's other cellular mechanics that may change that as well. And we can't ignore those hormones. When we look at the first three myths, cutting carbs and eating high protein in many women and in the beginning usually works to help reduce insulin and create more insulin sensitivity and make the cell more capable of burning fat. Because if insulin's up, fat burning is going to come down. It's like a seesaw. So in the short term, it works. But when we've been doing it for a long, long time and we're not getting to where we want to go, What may have happened is we've got a body that is primed to take those proteins, break them down to the amino acids as we digest them. And we have a liver that may be primed to go through gluconeogenesis and basically take those proteins and turn them into carbohydrates to be stored as triglycerides, to be stored as fat. And we see that more in women as we enter our 40s and into menopause, that activity is amplified because of the changes in estrogen 
and our other sex hormones. So cutting carbs and high protein doesn't always work for everybody. Same thing when we look at exercise. If we're doing high intensity and we're working out like a mad woman, we may be excessively catabolic. We may be creating higher stress chemistry, and we may actually be driving the body to try and store more fat because we're stressing the body out. So if your exercise is a lot and isn't effective, it doesn't mean that you don't need to exercise, but you may be doing something counterproductive, and it may mean cutting back, going to a more gentle form of exercise, or changing what you're doing. And we may be shortening durations of intensity to actually make it more effective. And when we look at macros and your concentration of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, yes, they're important, but they're important because they affect what the hormones are doing, particularly things like insulin and epinephrine, which is the the hormone that actually mobilizes fat from the fat cell to be burned and gets it into the cell. And another one called adiponectin, which is actually the key that pulls the fat out of the fat cell, dumps it into the bloodstream for epinephrine to pick up, to take it to the cell to burn. It is the manipulation of food that manipulates those hormones that can have an impact. But just blanket saying, counting macros and managing macros doesn't necessarily account for the nuances of what may be happening at the cell and how those hormones are communicating. So I just covered the first three lies, myths, and bullshit that are told to women who are over 40 that struggle with weight loss. So over the next several brain candy bits, I'm going to go into the other lies and myths out there that I've been using with my clients for the last 17 years to help them lose weight, regain their energy, rebalance their hormones, and be able to eat more freely than they probably had in the last 10 to 15 years because we created metabolic flexibility, which means that the body has become capable again of burning fat when it needs to, burning carbohydrates when it has them, and maintaining lean muscle mass without breaking down muscle to use it as fuel. All right. Thanks for listening to Brain Candy. Have a healthy and happy day. Thank you so much for tuning into this functional life. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. You're here for a reason. I celebrate your commitment to claiming your youthful energy and stepping into this next phase of life, feeling vibrant, healthy, and powerful. I am so proud of you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD. And if you want a chance to share your story with our tribe or find out more about working with my team, you can sign up at chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. Again, that's chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. See you next week. Bye-bye.